I'm going to get into something else, but I just had a thought before I started here, uh, which is, and you think about generosity and greed and how <laughs> the way those things are often framed is really kind of funny. Because uh, we think of somebody who hoards a resource, somebody who's greedy, who hoards a resource and wants more of it. And how, you know, that's bad because it's not generous and it takes something away from somebody else in theory. I mean, there are definitely times where people get accused of being greedy when it's not greedy at all. They just see any time somebody accumulates resources as a bad thing. But of course, there's, there's a million examples of people being greedy. There's a million examples of people being greedy. You know, there's a million. <laughs> we all know greed is real, in case anybody was wondering. It's just that it doesn't always get applied truthfully. People use it to their advantage. That's the thing, though. People, I mean, I'm just going to end up talking about this and not what I was even going to talk about. But it's a, it's a funny thing about people, though, because they react very emotionally when someone gets accused of greed. Like in politics or, you know, social, just our social uh, environment, you know, if somebody says, like, he's greedy, people just go, oh, he's bad. There doesn't even have to be that much substance to it. It doesn't even have to be contextualized. Just the accusation of greed is a scarlet letter. But what's funny about the opposite of that, you know, it's often framed as like greed and generosity, where those are the, the it's black and white. You're either greedy or you're generous. You're either greedy or you're generous. You're either greedy or you're generous. Greedy and you're generous. Greedy or you're generous. What if, you, what if you're greedy and generous? I don't think anybody's ever thought of that one. I think some people are. I've actually known people. I might even be that. I think I'm greedy and generous. I think I'm greedy and generous. Um, <laughs> since introducing these songs, I, I feel liberated, but also uh, in incarcerated. I feel both. Just like being greedy and generous, singing little ditties, making up little ditties on the fly on this show, just taking it down to the bottom level. Like, you thought this show was already one of the lower levels of hell. Well, as soon as I started introducing these ditties, I took it down a level a level lower. Just when you think you're on the lowest level of hell, or the lowest level of purgatory. Maybe purgatory has levels too. This show is more purgatorial than it is hellish. I gotta give myself some credit. This show is far more purgatorial than it is hell. So maybe I, I took us down a level in terms of purgatory. But anyway... Greedy or you're generous. It's seen as this black and white thing. And I'm not even saying it's a spectrum. I'm saying you can be a very greedy person while being a generous person. And there are a lot of examples of that. We, I mean, that's what a lot of rich people are. And not just because they want to donate to charity for tax breaks. Like, sure they do, but not just that. It's another example of people, is it, you know, it's just black and white where it's like people only donate to charity for the tax breaks or to seem like a virtuous person. Of course, a lot of people do that. Some people do that while also genuinely wanting to give to people because they're greedy and they're generous because they're greedy and they're generous. Because they're greedy and they're generous. Um, they're both. And I think a lot of really successful people who aren't completely scumbags, I think they're both of those things. And I think even somebody who doesn't have a lot of stuff is that way too. I'm greedy and generous, and I don't, you know, I don't have a ton. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, I understand what that is to be both of those things, and I think a lot of people aren't. 
But just getting back to like the dynamic people, people seeing like, oh yeah, the inverse, the reason why some people aren't rich is because other people are greedy or they themselves are generous. Like if you're always giving things away, that's why, that's the reason people don't have anything or they don't have anything because somebody else took it from them. And, you know, it'd be a nice world. Like I would love a world where everybody was just totally generous, not communist, but just very generous. When somebody truly needed something, people did something for them, which is about the most generic platitude a human being could ever say out loud. Oh, I think when someone needs something, someone should give it to them. Applause. Uh, but, uh, you know, often it doesn't work that way. Because there's some people who are just impulsive and irresponsible. I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm not including in this people who have just been hit with a hard life or hard times. Like if you're born into poverty and there's no opportunity around you and you miss all of the moments of luck that a person might have and you work hard and stuff. I mean, there's people who still have it difficult. And there are people who are poor in part because of greedy people. Like I said, this isn't me saying it's like it's one thing or the other. I'm just saying that there's a whole world in this. There's, there's a whole world inside of greed and generosity. And there's a lot of people, though, like the reason why they are struggling is because they're very impulsive. Like there's people who, who can hoard things, but they don't save them. They consume them. I mean, there's people who go to the grocery store and buy $200 worth of food and eat $150 of that in one night. You know, that person might have a lot, but if they consume it really quickly, they really don't. And that happens at every scale. Like, we always hear these stories about celebrities who are broke. It's the same thing. It's like they have a lot of resources. And some of them, yeah, some of them, maybe they're, they're doing something. They're manipulating the system in some way. Or they're crying broke when they aren't. But we see those people go bankrupt. I mean, it, athletes become famous and spend all their money. So like those people are, are rich and you could not necessarily because they're greedy, but they become rich and then they just consume all of their resources really quickly. So they don't really have wealth. They don't accumulate wealth because they just spend it. It's the same as someone buying $200 worth of food and eating it all in one night, which people do. Um, so the re you know, so part of this dynamic is like people aren't, it's not that those people are giving. Those are people who are consuming way more. And those people really freak me out. Those are the people who I think are the biggest problem. Are people who consume a lot. They take a lot of resources and they burn through them on their own. Like I think everybody has a little bit of respect for somebody who consumes a lot of resources and manages to, I mean, maybe not. Maybe not everyone thinks this way, but I always have a certain respect when I find out that someone puts money away or something like that. When they make money or they, they just have resources, it doesn't even have to be money, but they think ahead. I guess that's, it, it's not that like, I'm like, oh, it's so cool. They have all that. Oh, dude, it's so cool. They have all those resources. No, it's more just like, I respect the discipline. I respect the foresight in that. And when someone's just like, con like consuming stuff like a lawnmower cutting through tall grass, <laughs> you, uh, I'm a little like, I don't know if I want anything to do with that person. Whereas like somebody else would have the, an opposite philosophy. We're like, what's the point in having all that wealth if you're not going to spend it on fun and nice things? 
The whole point of accumulating it is so you can live big, baby. The whole point of having that stuff is so you can live big. Living big. There's people who admire that. They're like, yeah, well, party it up. Do whatever you want. Buy a speedboat. Buy a couple houses. Live it up. The whole point of it. But I don't know. There's different ways of seeing that. Because like, I think of someone accumulating wealth, and I don't think like they're they're wasting those resources they're storing. I think what they're doing is they're giving themselves a strong sense of security where it's like, I'm going to sit on my resources and accumulate them and not spend them wildly because that feeling of security and stability is worth far more than a steak dinner every night. The best steakhouse in town. You know, I think they're actually buying something when somebody hoards money they're actually buying something with that money, hopefully. Because, I mean, there's tons of people where it's pathological, where, I mean, I've known people, and I, you hear these stories all the time, of somebody who has a lot of money, but they're const- they constantly feel like they're broke. That's kind of what motivates them to be rich, is they can never really feel secure and stable. But there's a lot of people, too, who they have a lot of money, and they're like, oh, you know, I have security and stability now. There are people who manage to feel that way. And so they're actually, they're spending a lot of that money, but it's on security. It's on stability. It's like, yeah, that money's sitting in the bank. But what it does for my life, what it does for my sense of being is is worth far more than pleasure and entertainment. But like I said, it could be pathological too, where this person's worth millions of dollars, a billion, billion dollars. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm running out of money. Oh, my God, I lost $10. Oh, my. You know, it, it, think everything we do goes haywire. Everything we do can go into overdrive. Everything we, can, we do can malfunction. And you just turn into this robot. You turn into this neurotic robot, just like, I got to keep doing this thing. It's like a good thing gone haywire. But enough about that. I just had a random thought about greed and generosity and just the way that those are framed as if, you know, one, you can't be both of those things. You have to be one or the other. That the reason some people don't have things is because everyone else isn't generous enough. When some people don't have things because they don't really know how to have things. They don't, they don't know how to keep things. And that's what makes it so difficult. That's what makes economic questions so difficult. I don't know shit about the economy. I don't know shit. I should start pretending I know a ton about the economy. Hey... I know a lot about the economy. Hi, nice to meet you. Oh, you're really pretty. I know a lot about the economy. I don't even know what it means. That was one of those words as a kid where like when I was, I was a very observant kid, you know, where I just paid attention to what was on TV. Even if my mom was watching the news and I found it boring, I would kind of take in what they were saying because it was esoteric. It's like there's this language being spoken that I don't completely understand. So I'm kind of curious. When I would hear adults talking, I would listen in because I'd just be like, they're saying things I don't completely understand, but I'm curious. I noticed some of my close friends growing up were the same way. Like my buddy Nick. I remember, I, I noticed something about him. You know, he was we were in and each in and out of each other's houses our entire childhood. And I noticed like whenever a group of moms or whenever a group of adults were standing in a circle talking amongst themselves, he always kind of eavesdropped and learned something. <laughs> so you know, he was my best friend so it's like I think we both had that in common where like 
you know, we don't completely understand what the adults are all about. We don't understand what these terms are, but we're going to kind of pay attention. So you'd kind of, you'd learn things that way, like about not necessarily politics, because that was very abstract to me. And to be honest, it still is, to be honest. Uh, but just just different issues, different things that were important to adults in the world. You just kind of listened. You kind of faked it until you made it. You kind of listened as if you understood what they were saying. But the economy was one that I never could understand. I understood it related to money and finances and business and things like that. But I just never really wrapped my... It, it's so abstract. And it, that wasn't even the most confusing thing. It wasn't that I couldn't understand the economy and still don't. It was also the... So many people act like they do. And not just economists and bankers and people who actually, for whatever reason, really understand that system. That's how I see them. I, I don't even see those people like, oh, he's a genius. He's a genie genius. He's a genie genius. I don't even see them that way. I'm more just like, they really understand that system. They're really good at figuring out how that system works. Uh, but I... Uh, you see, just totally normal people just throw it out. Oh, it's going to be bad for the economy. Have you seen the economy? And there's always something dirty about talking about it. Like, it's difficult right now. I mean, I've talked about it on here briefly. Have you seen gas prices? Oh, my God, inflation. You know, it's hard not to talk about those things when they're pressing on you. But you always feel dirty when you do it. Even though it's affecting everybody. Even though nobody likes it. It's not like it's inappropriate. It just feels like one of those things you shouldn't comment on. Don't mention it. It's this abstract force. It's supernatural. We can't see it. It truly is supernatural. People come down on you for believing in ghosts or God or aliens or all these things. Meanwhile, they believe in the economy. They believe in this completely abstract force that governs our ability to feed ourselves and clothe ourselves and live under a roof you know it's, it's just very funny people believe in that oh my god and when something happens and it's the most arbitrary stuff you know the, the most minor thing i mean there was the thing a couple years ago where elon elian elian musk how he you know pretended to take a puff of weed on joe rogan's show and his stock cra it didn't crash but it went down the next day Oh my God, he took a hit of weed. And what's funny about it, he didn't even take a hit. I watched that. I watched it. And he didn't even take a hit. It just went in and out of his mouth. Like I'm at, I'm at a stage right now where I have a little bit of the weed oil, but I wasn't smoking very much. I mean, I just don't in general these days. It's just a very, it's end of the night maybe, if I can manage it. But I, you know, I just have like a little bit of the, the weed oil vape thing and like where I'm at right now is all I can do is like basically do what he did. Like I'll take just a baby hit that goes in my mouth and out and I just hope that a little bit got to my lungs because I'm just right now I feel like I'm just going to get a jolt of electric anxiety if I get high. So I just take like a baby hit that goes like into the back of my mouth and out and I just hope like just I hope just a little bit got in there but I don't want to be high. That's what Elon Musk did. I don't even think he did that. He didn't even do what I do. He, he just took like, it just like went into his mouth and he blew it out. And it's like, that. it's not taking a hit of weed. 
but it doesn't matter. Like, you know, his stock went down, whatever. And it's like, but the fact that this thing, the economy, it's like the foundation of our society. Everything is built on our economy. But some goofy, eccentric inventor slash CEO, all sorts of things, he can pretend to take a hit of weed on a podcast of a comedian. And that's enough to cause the stock to go down. And you see it with all kinds of things like that. I don't pay enough attention to catalog them because the economy is a demon that I'd rather not pay attention to. But you hear things like that, like, oh, this happened. So the stock, oh, they think because of this, the, the, the stock's going to go down. They, and, and people predict that. And people are often wrong, too. That's the weird thing. The experts are so often wrong. They all make these predictions. And I didn't plan this, but this perfectly segues into what I originally wanted to talk about when I started this. I didn't plan this. It's always nice when a, a, a plan falls together naturally. Because what I was going to talk about is prophecy. And this is a topic that comes up now and again on here, but prophecy and predictions. And something I notice, especially in the age of the internet, but I, I always remember this. I think it's just become more apparent online like other other behaviors have. Like other behaviors have. Just become more apparent online like other behaviors have. Um, but I've noticed that like, people get very excited or smug when they think their predictions came true. I said that was going to happen. What did I say two months ago? I told you. What did I tell you was going to happen? Thing, like world events and things. And, and people will make those predictions fit what actually happened. You know, so many things that occur, so many events and situations in the world are, are so multidimensional. Like if you made some kind of prediction, unless it's just completely wrong, there's a good chance you can make it fit what you were saying. Oh, well, this is what I meant. Oh, well, we'll see, like that's just a different interpretation of what I meant. But people seem to get a lot of pride, a lot of smug pride out of their predictions coming true, even if they're not true. But they really want to come across like these prophets. And in today's society, it's less focused on like, hey, I'm a, I'm a mystical prophet. It's more focused on like, I just, I just get things. I just know things. I'm smart. The reason my prediction came true is because I'm smart and I know things. I get it. But no matter how you explain it, it, it's always kind of looking for a prophet, and people want to feel like a prophet. But it's very telling when someone's very excited or smug about one of their predictions. That tells me that they're full of shit. Even if their prediction was true, that tells me they're a fraud. Because it's like, what's there to celebrate? Oh, you were right. You were right. Or kind of right. You feel justified in saying what you did or, th or thinking something was going to happen. And those types of people, though, you know, they'll never acknowledge when their prediction was wrong, of course. When it's right, they're like, oh, see? See, I just know. I just knew. And it's very much for other people. It's very performative. It's like they want other people to see that. Oh, I was right. And that, for some people, that's their entire profession. There's people who get paid to do that. I mean, talking about the economy, that's what a lot of those guys do. And I'm not even talking about them. I'm just talking about people in their own political people. I'm talking about random social media users, bloggers, public personalities, just people who are out there. I always smell a fraud. Smell a fraud. I don't like smelling frauds. But I always smell a fraud when one of those people is like a little too smug or excited, a little giddy. Giddy would be the right word. 
And they're a little too giddy that their prediction came true. It tells me that doesn't happen very often. Because if your predictions come true all the time, if your prophecies come true, you're just like, oh, it's another one. Yeah, that's, that's just what happens. My predictions come true. Or it's a sickly feeling. Like, I can tell you when my predictions come true, especially if they, there's anything even remotely negative about them, I feel sick. Not literally physically ill, but I have this sinking feeling. And I don't want to talk about it. Like, if I predict that something... I mean, I, I've had this happen, because this happens on a personal level, too. Like, I've had friends tell me things like, oh, I'm getting back together with her. I'm getting back together with him. And whatever it is they're doing... And you just, I mean, that's a really easy one. You don't have to be a prophet to see how those situations go. But somebody will just tell you they're going to do something. And like in your gut, you're like, ooh, that's not going to work out. And you don't want to be a naysayer and express that ever. But just like you, you kind of know. You can kind of see how it's going to go. And sometimes people surprise you. But oftentimes, you know, your prediction is right. And you never feel good about it. But I feel that way about world events and things too. Like when I think something bad is going to happen in the world, and it does. I mean, a good example of this, you know, I'm not a prophet. But a good example of this, and I, I still feel sick about it, is when, uh, right before my mom died, it was about, it was Thanksgiving. It was right around Thanksgiving, and my mom would die a couple weeks later. And I remember, like, I was having a conversation with my mom, and I was like, I just wish something really big would happen. Like, world-shaking. And I didn't mean it as a good thing, but I said, you know, I just want something. I, I was feeling so stagnant. I was like, I just want something big to happen. This is around late November, 2019. I don't even think my mom said anything. I don't think she knew what the fuck I was talking about, but I didn't necessarily want it to be a good thing. I, I wasn't thinking, I hope something horrible and catastrophic happens, but I didn't mean it in a good way either. And then two weeks later, my mom's dead. Two months later and coronavirus hits this country just degenerates in all sorts of ways. It goes, a process that was already unfolding, this revolution that has been slowly unfolding just goes into, into gear. And I've thought about that a few times. Like, like I, don't, I don't feel responsible for it. Like me saying that brought that on. That's another part of this. I mean, that's, that's where you, I've had that feeling. I try not to dwell on it, but sometimes you have that feeling. Like you're somehow responsible for something that you have no direct control over. It's kind of narcissistic. It's associated with certain, obviously, personality disorders and mental illnesses. But I think a lot of normal people experience it too. You wouldn't even be able to put it into words and you might not even want to. But you kind of feel like, oh man, I really wish I wouldn't have said that or predicted that. So I've thought back on that and I'm like, I didn't, it's not like I was predicting coronavirus, but I just said to my mom, like, I really want something big to happen. And it was almost like I was expecting it. Like the way I said it was almost like I was anticipating it. And then sure enough, a lot of big things happen personally and, and in the world. It reminds me of my buddy Nick, who I was talking about, where when we were, I think we might have been in high school. Yeah, our first year of high school or something. There was a guy, a classmate's older brother went off to the Iraq war. And he ended up getting injured. And then he was, when he got out of the hospital, he went out and he, I think he dove on a grenade and died. And I, I told my friend that, I told Nick that, I was like, hey, did you hear that his brother died? And he goes, I feel sickly responsible. And he told me this story where he'd been at this kid's house who he skateboarded with, and this kid was being babysat by a girl a few years older, and 
she was close to the family. So she had a, while she was babysitting this kid and my friend was there, she had a going away party for the guy who was going to Iraq. It was, it was a group of people who were probably like 19, 19 years old. They'd graduated high school, but you know, he, he had signed up. It was post nine 11. He was going to go to Iraq and the kids, like my friend included, like they spied on the party. And my friend said that like, he, he was like, peering through a door or something or like looking through he, he was an observer he was outside of the situation observing this and he said like at one point the girl hosting the party was like i'm not going to say the guy's name but she was like I might as well why why do i have to hide it um she's like hey everybody i, I just want everybody to uh I, I shouldn't be mocking with this it's sad but she was like hey i want everybody to uh you know, like Jake's going to Iraq, like he's he's going on over overseas soon. And it was like this going away party for him. And she made this announcement and stuff. And like my friend being who he is and just kind of observing this from afar in another part of the house, he felt this really dark feeling. Like almost like he was viewing a movie. It was like a scene. You could imagine that in a movie. Like here's the scene where they have a going away party for the young guy who's going off to war. And then at school, when I went up to him, I was like, oh, yeah, you hear he got killed. And he was just like, I feel sickly responsible. It's not like he, you know, went off about it, but it's like, I know that feeling. It's almost like because he saw this scene and it was kind of dark, it was something kind of ominous and foreboding, like foreshadowing. I, I completely understood what he meant. And I felt that way. It's not like he made a prophecy. It's not like my friend was like, oh, and I knew right then he was going to die. I'm sure my entire home, hometown would hate me if they heard me talking about it this way. Um, the guy died a hero. He really did. But uh, it was, I just understand that feeling where you get kind of like an intuitive sense for what's going to happen. And you almost question yourself. Like if I didn't observe that or I didn't think that, would that have happened? But anyway, getting back on track. It's funny that people will lie about their own ability to predict things. You know, I was mentioning how people will get excited or smug or giddy, and that's often a sign that they're a false prophet. Because you should either feel sick about it or you, or it should just be casual. Like you're like, oh, yep. Yeah. It's like synchronicity. Like synchronicity is very exciting when you experience it, if it's new to you. If you're not sure what that is and you're like, I can't believe that came up four times in two days. Oh, I can't believe you just called me when I was thinking about you and brought up the exact thing that I was thinking about. You know, it's stuff like that that'll blow your mind. But you do like and I, I used to get really excited and giddy about that stuff. And I would want to call somebody and be like, this synchronicity happened. It's wild. And I would always hear people, you know, you know, spiritual practitioners and just various people be like, you know, experience those, but don't celebrate them. Don't cling to them. And eventually you do reach a point, though, where you don't. Like, those things happen or they don't happen. And when they do happen, you're just like, yeah, you know, of course that happened. Of course. Like, it's no longer a surprise. It's casual. You know that that happens. You know that Indra's net is made up of jewels and every jewel reflects every other jewel. So, of course, you're going to be hit with synchronicity. Of course that's going to happen. There's a great interconnectivity to everything. And it goes beyond scientific mathematic probability there's something strange that happens but once you realize it's actually normal once you realize it's totally normal 
to experience these moments of interconnectivity, these little winks from the universe, God, whoever, who's just like, here you go. Here's just a little reminder of the interconnectivity. Here's a glimpse. Here's a glimpse of that thing that's going on all the time, and you're just so caught up in nonsense that you, you forget about it or you don't notice it. You forget that you're living in it. You forget that by being alive, you yourself are part of a greater synchronicity. How does this sound? How does this speech sound? It's true, though. You, you, by being a living human being, you are part of a greater interconnectivity, a wholeness. And you forget that, and so many things obscure that, that you get glimpses of it, and you're like, oh my God, these, these, I'm reminded that everything's connected. But how you know many spiritual teachings say, don't get attached to that, don't celebrate it. Don't make a big deal about it. And I think one of the reasons they teach that is because that stuff is normal. And you don't want to be attached to it or, or cling to it or expect it or want it. Because that's what kind of happened to me. Like years ago, when I was younger and like I would experience synchronicity, often with other people, so I know I wasn't crazy. But when I would experience synchronicity, I would want more of it. I, I'd, I'd actually think, like, I hope that happens again. I'd almost look for it. And a lot of people are synchronicity hunters. But I and I think that that it's it's fun to be hey buddy don't bite me uh, I think it's fun to be excited about that I don't think you should be too austere I don't think you should be mean spirited about the idea of celebrating these phenomenon that we try to deny and obscure from our lives I think it's fun to be excited about it but you should eventually kind of accept it as normal and when you do that means that you're connecting with the greater wholeness at least a little bit more. I mean, I, I certainly don't feel connected to the wholeness all the time. I don't really feel it right now. But I think when you stop celebrating that kind of thing, you're like, oh, yeah, of course. I think prophecy and prediction is kind of similar where it's like if you're actually able to predict things and, and prophesize about things, you should reach a point where it's just normal. And you're like, yeah, that's just how things work. But it's, it's not just uh, people claiming to be false prophets. We're not claiming to be false, but it's not just people claiming to be prophets and being false. You also see where people really seek prophets. And they get really excited and these little cults develop. So-and-so said this would happen. Oh my God, I can trust him now. They're the people who get sucked in. Like when someone's like, hey, I predicted this. Or even if the person themselves doesn't remind people that they predicted it, there are a certain number of people who are going to remember and they're going to be like, so-and-so predicted this. He's our prophet. Everybody trust him. And it's funny that we look for that. And we don't frame it around like seeking a prophet. We're just like, this is a guy I can trust. This is a guy who knows how things are. This is a guy who knows how things are. You know, we, we kind of look at it that way if we're more materialist. But it's like you can see where the impulse is still coming from the same place, which is we found our prophet. And, uh, you know, it's funny. You know, and cults develop around that. Real cults, but also little micro cults. Public figures, internet personalities. Some of them, it's entirely based on the fact that like they made predict, they make predictions and once in a while they're right and their followers are like, see? The thing is, some people are prophets. Like I do believe that there's a very tiny, minuscule 
amount of people at any given time who really do have an extraordinary ability to see things into the future. I don't know what that is. I've known a couple. I've known one for sure. And I've known people who are on the, on the road to be in that way. And I feel like I've been lucky to know them. I don't know what that is. You know, I'm not going to, I don't have an explanation for it. You think I know what that is? I just know that there's some people who have an extraordinary ability. And uh, they're not just people who throw out a bunch of predictions. They really have laid things out. And, you know, you could look at this from a more materialistic, scientific point of view if you want and say, some people just have a really good intuition. Some people just really understand patterns. And I think that's a big part of it. Like speaking for myself, like when I accurately predict things or think I know something's going to happen, maybe a little bit of maybe a little bit of it can't be explained. But I think part of it is just, you know, having a really honed intuition and really listening to your intuition about things. Not processing things through your midwit average intelligence brain, but just feeling the feeling information, feel, you know, feeling your surroundings, feeling what you observe. You can't teach it, but it's like, I think you can strengthen your intuition. I think anybody can. I don't think it's, it's not like an IQ or an intellect where you just have it set. I think everybody is intuitive. I mean, I've known some people who would be considered very stupid by a lot of people, uneducated, just boneheads. And I find that they still have an intuition, a strong one sometimes. I mean, that's why when people look back at primitive man and cavemen and everything, they're like, how'd they do it? Their IQs were 60. And it's like they, they were running on intuition. You know, they weren't thinking about things the way you think of them. They were operating off of intuition. And it probably got them into all kinds of messes too. But it's also probably the reason you're around today. But people are looking for that. Like they're looking, I mean, because that's kind of, you look at the shaman. I mean, we do see this on a primitive level. Level, level. We do see this on a primitive level. On a primitive level where it's like, we see very primitive tribes have a shaman or some guy, a seer, some guy who kind of knows what's going to happen. And maybe they're that really small percentage of people who have some sort of extraordinary ability we can't explain. But they also might just be the guy in the tribe who sees patterns the best, who observes things and processes them and feels them. But either way, we, we have a need for that. It's something all human beings do. We see it in a religious, spiritual context, but we also see it casually. We see it in the secular world. It's the reason we have these economists make all kinds of predictions about the economy, which is a supernatural force. How is that any different than a lot of conceptions of God? It's like, oh, there's this abstract, invisible force that you know reacts to the smallest things, the smallest whims, and our well-being depends on it. If this thing goes bad, it means that you know food's going to be more expensive and there's going to be less of it. It means life's going to be harder. It's going to be harder to survive. That's how people see God. It's like the idea, oh, if God gets mad, the crops aren't going to grow. The resources aren't going to be there. It's very, it's very similar to how we view the economy. The economy is not God. That's a big difference. But people view it that way. It becomes that to them. And they name their own prophets over that thing. Oh, I'm going to tell you what the invisible force is going to be like a week from now. I'm going to tell you what the invisible force is going to think and react to. You know, when, when Elian smokes, a, a, he pretends to smoke a joint. You know, that's the kind of shit. Like, that, that sounds insane. That sounds like 
I mean, that sounds like pseudoscience. But yeah, you know, I, I don't have a totally secular view of it. I, I wouldn't even say my view is secular at all. I just know that the average person picks up on patterns and intuition. I'm not a, uh, what do you call it? A, uh, do I even need the word? I, I can't remember the word. I'll think of it later. I don't need to break things down into their smallest parts and think that that's where the meaning comes from, or that's the only part of it. Uh, reductionism. You know, I'm not a reductionist, but like, I don't need to break down everything to its smallest component and say that's why it is the way it is. Because if anything, why it is the way it is, is because of all those parts working and whatever that is when they work together, the wholeness. But that said, I, you know, I can look at it and say, yeah, you know, a lot of what people see as prophecy is just somebody with a really good intuition who's observant, who takes things in and like doesn't just think about them, but kind of feels them, just feels them. And they see the patterns. And I see, I, I've talked about psychic activity on here the same way. A lot of, because I mean, that's the same thing we're talking about. Like the ability to predict the future is a psychic phenomenon, the way we think of it. But even just on a mundane level, like, and, and everybody always thinks of psychic phenomena. They always think of prophecy in the most grandiose terms. When it happens all day, every day, everywhere you are, it's usually mundane. Usually mundane. So it usually is mundane. It happens a lot while driving. You'll see a car, and for, for some reason, they're, they're not doing anything wrong. They're not weaving. They're not speeding. They're not doing anything wrong. They're in front of you. And you just go, I don't trust them. There's nothing about them. There's nothing intellectually you could observe about that car that, or that person in it that would make you not trust them. They're just another car on the street. This happens to me constantly. I'll be. It's often when I'm behind a car, but sometimes when they're behind me. But when I'm behind a car, I'll just be like, oh, I got to be careful. And sure enough, that person doesn't use their turn signal stops abruptly, starts weaving, they're texting, they're sexting, they text in the sexted. And I just somehow knew, even though there was no information available to me, I just knew, something told me, my intuition told me, don't trust that person in the car in front of you. Leave a lot of space. I'm talking to myself like a mom. Leave a lot of space with the car in front of you. My mom used to tell me that. And, uh, you know, it happens though with people behind you too. Like sometimes I'll be at a stoplight or I'll just be driving and like some guy gets behind me and he's not doing anything wrong in that moment. There was nothing, there's no information or data that I could take in that tells me this guy's going to tailgate me or be an asshole. But I just see him behind me. And the second I see him, I think, oh God, this guy's behind me. I got to be careful. And sure enough, many times that guy ends up being a problem. I don't know what that is. It's like an aura or an energy you're picking up on. And it's mundane. I mean, that shit's as mundane as you can get sitting in traffic. But it happens all the time with all sorts of different situations. And yeah, you could bring it into that territory of like, well, the fact that you thought it, did you manifest it? I believe in some degree of manifestation for sure. But I also believe there's chaos all the time too. I believe things happen randomly. I don't know. I believe both. Sometimes you manifest things, sometimes they just happen. 
Sometimes it's both. Sometimes I, I don't even know if I can separate those ideas. I don't even know, I don't think we're in a position to be able to even separate those things and know which is which. But you just get kind of a psychic intuition like, oh, that car is going to be a problem. I should be careful. And it's for me, it's almost always confirmed in that situation. For some of us, it's with people. Sometimes you don't trust somebody and you're like, okay, yeah, I got that feeling from them. It doesn't really matter whether you believe in psychic phenomena or not. Like this happens. It doesn't matter what the framework is. It doesn't matter whether you trust your prophet because he's an economist or a shaman. It happens. But it's interesting that people are always looking for it. You know, people are always seeking out the next prophet. They're like, this guy knows. This guy gets it. This guy can tell us something. But you can never trust someone who's too giddy or smug about it. Like, yep, I do. What it reminds me of is I had a neighbor as a kid named Joe. He was a year older than me, and I really looked up to him. And a uh, really sweet kid. Like, he helped me tie my shoes one time when I didn't know how to tie them. I had to take my shoes off at school. And I was, I was, I, I learned how to tie my shoes kind of late, like, like in the middle of first grade or something. I was a late bloomer with shoe tying. And uh, we, I think we had to go to gym class or something, and I had to take off my shoes. And we had a split class, so it's, this is all kinds of detail, but... Uh, it was a split class, so there was first graders and second graders, and I got to have my neighbor who I admired in my freaking class. It ruled. I got to be in class with Joe. It's the name of my movie, In Class with Joe. <laughs> it's, the C it's, the, it's the debut episode of In Class with Joe. But no, Joe, he, he was so just such a nice kid. And there was a time where he tied my shoes for me because I couldn't tie him, and he didn't humiliate me. He just tied my shoes for me. Like, what a nice kid. That was the kind of kid he was. But there was there was a time like where he lived next to me and, and we would play, you know, in the yard. And one time like he told me, like, he's like, I know everything. Which wasn't like Joe. Wasn't like Joe to talk like that. He was a really humble, nice kid. So when a humble, nice kid just kind of as an aside, like tells you he knows everything, you might take him a little more seriously than you would some loudmouth idiot. I don't know what kind of wild hair was, you know, Joe had that day because, like, I don't know why he decided that day to tell somebody he knows everything. But then I went around the entire neighborhood because at that point, all the kids were just outside all the time. All the kids in the neighborhood were playing in our yard, around other people's yards. And I started going around to everybody. I said, Joe knows everything. I was like, a, it was like a cult. Hey, Joe knows everything. And my mom, I told my mom that. I was like, hey, you know Joe knows everything? Joe knows everything. <laughs> Maybe that should be the name of the... <laughs> that should be the name of the movie. Joe knows everything. I feel like there probably is a movie called that. Um, but I told my mom, I was like, hey, you know Joe knows everything. It was, it was almost like, have you heard Christ has risen? And the thing was, like, I, like this kid and I stayed friendly, you know, for the rest of our rest of school, but we didn't stay close friends. Like, I didn't admire him. I thought he was. I always thought he was nice. Like, I never had a beef with Joe. A beef with Joe. You got a beef with Joe? He knows everything. How could you have a beef with Joe? Because he knows everything. <laughs> I 
<laughs> sorry. But uh, anyway, anyway, uh, like this wasn't like I didn't spend my entire childhood worshiping Joe. I wouldn't even say I worshipped him. I just I just admired him. Just admired him. I didn't, I didn't worship him. I just admired him. But anyway, like I told my mom, like Joe knows everything, and she goes like, "How do you know that?" And I go, "He told me." And so that became a punchline for the rest of my life. Or the, you know, my mom would bring that up periodically. That she loved that story. But I was looking for a prophet or something. Like it's not even like Joe was dishing out prophecy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he told me he knew everything, and I guess I, I, I was like, "That's great. That's great, Joe." So in a way, I was. It's like you kind of look for that. Like you look for that person who knows everything. And a little to a little kid, it's kind of absurd. Like because a little kid can tell another little kid that he knows everything, and you believe him. But it's kind of what people are looking for as adults when they're like, "Oh, he he told us the election was going to be contested. This guy knows everything. Tell us something else." They start going to the person for more. He told us that Trump's fell was going to do this. What what else can you tell us? Can you give us a little more info? I even see it on true crime boards and stuff. I've noticed this like following true crime boards, especially these unsolved cold cases and things like that. There's always someone making a prediction like they're going to arrest the guy. He's going to be a he's going to be a high school gym teacher. He's going to have thinning blonde hair. He's going to have glasses with black frames. You know, people get very specific. They they want to be the person who not just solves the case because that, that's a whole part of the true crime unsolved cases genre or whatever you want to call it. They call it, I hear this all the fucking time, true crime community. Get rid of this word, guys. The CIA and the FBI and the NSA call themselves the intelligence community. No joke. That word is so sick now. It's such a mutation on what a community is. It's not even a mutation. It's just a lie. My new thing is just, it's a lie. Like these, guys, these people who, who tell prophecies, but they're giddy about it. Well, there's a liar. Just, you're just lying. But in true crime, like you have uh, the Nancy Drew types who are like, they think they're going to solve the case. And it's not that tips are bad. It's not that like the public can't help a case, of course. But you have these people where it's almost pathological. Like they've seen too many movies or TV shows. They've watched too much Law and Order. And they think they're going to be this little Nancy Drew. It's like, I figured it out. It's going to be this guy. I found the guy. That's a big thing with unsolved true crime cases online where they uh, people get a, a person of interest and they develop this whole theory on why it's them. I saw it happen. I mean, the main example of this I've followed is uh, before, the, before the East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker, Joseph D'Angelo got caught. I was on that message board, like some message board for it for years. And I threw out my own theories. You know, I wasn't above throwing out my own theories or talking about it. But there were these people who had gotten convinced they knew who it was, convinced, religious about it. And it was like a religious conviction where on these boards, if somebody proposed their own theory or just anything those people would jump in and be like we found him he's this guy the police haven't arrested him because he served in vietnam and he had connections to high-level politicians and they've been protecting him that's literally one of the big cult-like theories that developed during the east area rapist uh, joseph d'angelo case 
people on these boards had found this guy who was, he was some sort of war hero and he was still living and he was a very athletic guy for his old age. He was still living though. And like he did, he had been given a medal. He'd been honored. Like he obviously had connections to high level people and stuff. He had never committed a crime but he lived in that area or something and somehow somebody stumbled upon him. I think, I think he had lived in the same areas that that guy struck. I think there was something to that effect. Like he had lived in the same cities where, uh, that guy struck something to that effect. There was some reason this guy, people became aware of this guy, but they, this guy had never committed a crime and they became convinced that there was this conspiracy cover up because this guy was a war hero that the government had colluded and protected this guy who murdered 13 people or whatever it was and raped dozens, 70 women, however many it was. And they were convinced of it. It was, it was like a wide-eyed religious conviction these people had. And I remember the board, I think, had to ban some of them because they were, and there were a bunch of them. And there were other people who were a lesser version of that where it was just like they became convinced that it was a certain guy and they just wouldn't let it go. And then when that case got solved a few years ago, by that time, I was no longer reading that shit. I just kind of moved on from true crime in general. But I went back and I wanted to see how people, what people were saying and what they were reacting to. And there were people who had those insane theories and that religious conviction. And they, the ones who accepted that, that Joseph D'Angelo did it were like trying to fit him into their theory. They were like, oh, well, like I always thought that it was two guys because like that one victim said she thought she heard two voices. So it makes total sense that my guy and Joseph D'Angelo worked in tandem. And so it's like, you, you learn a lot about human psychology through that, where you're like, oh shit, like they were presented with, with new facts that prove they were wrong. And some people respond to that with, oh, that's just the cover up. That just proves the conspiracy is still going on. They framed an innocent guy to save my guy. Some people are that crazy, but then there's a whole other sort of person who tries to reconcile it, where they're like, oh, that doesn't fit. But actually, I I thought there was always evidence of two guys working together. You know, it's, it's really wild stuff to see people do that. And that happens with any, like you see with the Zodiac Killer, all sorts of weird, random names get pulled out of a hat for him. Oh, he kind of looked like the police sketch, and he lived in San Francisco. You know, it's always shit like that. And, uh, you know, I saw it with Joseph D'Angelo, because that was the case that I followed very closely. And then, you know, since I started paying attention off and on to this Delphi murders case, where the two little girls were killed, and they caught the video of this guy approaching them, and it's really bone chill. I get chills just saying it out loud. The video of the guy who killed them walking toward them. I mean, it's the scariest thing. Like, that's scarier than seeing him kill them or something. To me, like, just that that four-second clip of him approaching slowly, I'm just like, fuck. But it's a very blurry, very pixelated video. You know, he's, he's off in the distance or something. He's, you know, it's, it's not high quality. So people see all kinds of things. And with that case, since I started paying attention to it, people have their own theories about who it is, and they're convinced. They're totally convinced. So you see where like people in true crime, they want to be prophets too. They want to be like, I know who it is. That's what I said. That's what I said. I said it was going to be a guy like that. I said it was going to be him.
People want to claim credit. It's just a weird thing we do. They want to claim credit for these predictions. And even when their predictions are wrong or not completely right, they find a way to bend it. Because you can do that with lies. You can do that with illusions. You can bend them. They're bendy. But uh, I don't know. It's, just, it's, it's been weird to see that in, the, in true crime because a lot of people get sucked into it. And, you know, for example, like some of it's a little more reasonable. Like, for example, there's a podcast that covers that case called Murder Sheet. It's this really dorky guy and girl who are both lawyers. And their podcast got big because they, they found like, what do you call them? Like classified documents that revealed more information about the case. And they kind of, they tactfully shared them. And they've, they've also been on the beat, on the beat. And they've, they've managed to get some information that wasn't publicly available, and they seem very credible. The people who have their own theories about, like, who it is, like, they hate, they hate Murder Sheet because they're insane. But Murder Sheet, you know, I, I always listen to it, and I'm like, these people are so fucking dorky. But they're not. What they're doing is fine. Like, what they're doing is the best, one of the better resources exploring what we don't know about this unsolved case. That's my feeling on it. But, uh... They've developed a little bit of a cult following too, though, because it's like they've, they've managed to, re- because they've been able to release some information and give people an idea of what's going on with the investigation, like the police haven't released, you know, they've been able to provide some information the police haven't released that seems to have uh, validity. You know, the, the ethical questions there, you know, if the police aren't sharing it, should you be sharing it? But, you know, who knows? You know, some people have theorized that they're getting some of their information from the police themselves. Apparently, there was a case that I, I don't know anything about, but there was an unsolved murder case where the police actually fed information to a podcast to get the information out there and kind of put pressure on and expand the reach. And supposedly, the podcast helped. Help. Supposedly, the podcast helped. I don't know if it got it solved, but it, I, I've seen people who aren't idiots say that that process actually helped solve the case so some people have theorized that like maybe the the indiana police have fed information to this podcast for similar reasons it's a new modern way i mean they do that with regular journalists that's been a long-standing technique in law enforcement to leak information to journalists to try to get a certain result uh i mean following the mafia they've done that a lot like the fbi would tell a newspaper something the newspaper would publish it and that would get guys on the street talking. So like the FBI would have wiretaps on these guys' phones. They would release something to the newspaper. The newspaper publishes it. The mafia guys read it. They run and get on the phone and they were like, did you see? They know this. They found this out. And that actually helps the police, the FBI develop even more intelligence about those guys. So there's all kinds of crafty ways. I mean, this is probably water is wet to a lot of people, but there's all kinds of crafty ways that police will disseminate information and podcasts are just a new form of media. So why should it be any different? But because Murder Sheet has been able to release like some things that aren't publicly available and seem to be valid, people are like, oh my God, it's their profits. Although in this case, I don't think it's that bad. I think this is a good example of like, they don't claim to have any special insight. They just claim to be two lawyers who are doing what they consider their journalistic duty, doing a podcast, and they're just sharing actual information they've gathered. 
So I don't think they're claiming anything weird. They're not claiming to have any vantage point. But they have been like, we have anonymous sources. And an anonymous source is kind of like a prophet, where it's like, here's this, this person who, in the shadows, who we can't name, who's telling us things that we shouldn't know, that we're not supposed to know. And that's kind of what prophecy is. It's like, it's someone telling you something you're not supposed to know. You're not supposed to know the future. You know, you're not supposed to know that. That's why we don't typically know it. So we almost never know it. Because you're not supposed to know it. Clearly you're not supposed to know the future because we can't see the future. If we were supposed to see the future, maybe more of us would be able to do it. So when someone does have some sort of ability to share information that's otherwise obscure, they kind of become a de facto prophet. Which is the name of my band. Hey, we're the de facto prophets. Playing the local bar scene. Playing a festival. Hey, you want to come see my band? We're called the de facto prophets. Worst shit you could ever imagine. You just know if a band has a name like that, you know, it's some of the, the worst shit you could ever imagine. Um, anyway, speaking of murder sheet, it's funny because at the start of their episodes, I, I don't listen. They do. They cover other murders and stuff from what I gather. I just occasionally, if they have some kind of update on the case, I'll listen. I, I don't listen to true crime podcasts ever. It's actually the only one that I'll occasionally listen to just to hear updates on the case. Because, I don't know, just that image of the guy walking toward the girls. I wouldn't normally, especially like no longer having the true crime bug, no longer being interested in killers or anything like that for the last five or six years. Something about that Delphi murders case kind of caught me. Like the, the weird railroad bridge that they were on, this fucking, fucking footage of the guy. It's so fucking creepy. The mystery of it all. But what's funny about Murder Sheet is at the beginning of every episode, they give like a disclaimer. It's actually a trigger warning. They're like content warning. This discusses, you know, sexual abuse and violence. And it's like, your show's called Murder Sheet. Your show's called Murder Sheet. Does somebody need to hear a disclaimer? Does somebody need to hear a content warning that this is going to be about dark, evil shit? Dark, evil shit. This show is about dark, evil shit, so we're just giving you a warning. It's, it's like, it's just always funny to me. It's so redundant. Like, if I ran a podcast called Murder Sheet, if this show was called Murder Sheet, which would be so... Imagine that. Too bad I, I didn't get in early enough. Or no, no, I, I think, I mean, my, my podcast is older than theirs. But I, I should have chosen that name. I should have named this show Murder Sheet. It'd be so perfect. But if my show was called that, I wouldn't feel the need to give a content trigger warning at the beginning. I wouldn't feel the need to give a disclaimer about the content of the show. I'd be like, you're listening to a show called Murder Sheet. What do you think it's going to be about? You think you're going to be listening to something pleasant? What's funny about that, though, is you know, disclaimers and content warnings are kind of this, in the same genre. They're not the exact same thing. I've talked many times for many years on here about disclaimer culture, how it used to be disclaimers were this thing that you saw, you'd see them at the beginning of movies, TV shows, and sometimes it would be a warning. It would be like, this show contains graphic imagery and adult language. Sometimes it would be that, which is the same thing as these content warnings. It's the same. It's a trigger warning. People act like trigger warnings are new. No, like you'd watch Dragnet or something, and it's like the names have been changed to protect the innocent. This show depicts graphic violence. You know, you'd see that all the time. Those are trigger warnings. 
but you know, obviously it became kind of pathological, but it kind of followed disclaimer culture where it's like every movie or TV show, in addition to doing content warnings and things like that, which is the same thing as the rating system, rated R, rated X. But in addition to that, you would see this sort of legal aspect where it was like, we have no responsibility for what you do or how you perceive this. And it's obviously for legal reasons, so you have no responsibility, you know, so you're not legally responsible. But that kind of bled into like the, the new form of content warnings, trigger warnings. We just became a culture that's constantly disclaiming things, constantly warning people before we say anything. You're running a, a podcast about murder and sexual violence. And at the beginning, you have to tell people, and it's called Murder Sheet, and at the beginning, you have to tell people that, you have to tell people what it's going to be about. It's just funny. And obviously, that's bled into social life. Like, I remember when trigger warnings got big on social media, with trigger warning, and it just spiraled out of control there. I had a friend of mine here in Olympia, and one of her friends, who was a large girl, uh, my friend was telling me, oh, yeah, you know, she, she thinks there should be trigger warnings when someone discusses food or posts a picture of food online because she's fat and eats compulsively. And my friend was sympathetic because she was of that mindset too. But I, I just didn't say anything. I was just like, oh boy. You think people should post content warnings before they post food because you're fat and you eat too much and it makes you want to eat? I understand. I understand being compulsive. I did something to myself years ago where I'd stay up really late at night. It was, around, it was after I quit drinking. I wasn't smoking any weed. I wasn't doing anything like that. I was getting into meditation and things. And I would stay up really late at night looking at pictures of really good food. Like I would look up pictures of really good pizza. And what was interesting is like my, even if I wasn't hungry, eventually my stomach would start to growl. I'd be sitting there in bed just looking at pictures of pizza and things like that. Things that I would just love to snack on. I don't know why I started doing that. I wasn't even planning. Like One night I just wanted to look at a good pizza because there's something satisfying about that. And then I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting to not, to not go and eat after this. Because you see that. I mean, that's the reason advertising works. It's like a pizza commercial and you're like, I got to order pizza. Oh, that looks so good. I got to get me that. You know, that's how a lot of people think. And, you know for a reason, you know, that's how we're wired. But I was, I was just looking at like sometimes desserts. Although thing is, I don't miss desserts. Like I, 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 I eat some things that aren't perfectly healthy these days. Like I'm not as crazy as I was a few years ago, but my, my diet's still very healthy. And, uh, like I'll sometimes like think like, Oh, it'd be great to have pizza. It'd be great to have like fried chicken or just something. But I very rarely think about things that are just like ice cream, dessert. I very rarely want that. But I understand like some people see that and they want it, but it was just an interesting period. I didn't do that forever, but I would just sit there and my stomach would start growling even if I wasn't hungry because it was it was like, like looking at that much desirable food just made my stomach go like, oh, I want that. And mentally you say you want that, but if you resist it, it's almost like fasting or something. I almost wonder if it like if it makes your metabolism faster to do that. It's being a psychic. It's like if you look at pictures of really desirable food but don't eat it, does your body start processing what's already in you faster? 
thinking it's going to get that or because it wants that. Because you think of your stomach growling as a very physical thing. So it was a really weird thing to me that like my stomach would actually start growling even though I wasn't hungry. But it was because like mentally I was looking at these, these fantasy photos of pizzas. Um, fantasy photos of pizzas. But uh, got me going on that was just that girl, friend of a friend here in Olympia who like saying like they need to have content warnings on food because she can't stop eating. Like she can't see a picture of food without wanting it. And so she was of the opinion there should be warnings like just put a warning on everything, I guess. And you just get into this old man sort of like, just put a trigger warning on anything. Get a safe space for anything. You get into that territory, but it's like there's a reason why people react that way to, to people who think in, along those lines. But uh, I don't know. What's funny about these disclaimers and stuff today, it's like a psychic disclaimer. Because it used to be TV shows. It was like, oh, you know, when it gives a disclaimer, it was like, don't do anything physically stupid. Like the show Jackass. There was that show on MTV called Jackass with Johnny Knoxville on Jackass. And they would give a warning. It was like, don't try this at home. That was usually what it was. Kids, don't try this at home. But we used to make fun of that stuff. Like that was the common disclaimer. That was the common like content warning when I was growing up. Things would say, don't try this at home. And we'd make fun of all that. We'd make fun of disclaimers. We knew why they existed, but we'd always make fun of them. Like you started to hear kids don't try this at home just more as a joke than a reality. Like if somebody was about to do something stupid on camera, they'd like sarcastically say that into the camera, you know? So we used to make fun of it. We didn't take it that seriously. Like we understood, like I think it was effective in the sense that maybe it gave some idiots pause. Like maybe some idiot who's watching Jackass is like, okay, because they told me not to do what they're doing, I'm less likely to do it. But overall, like we, we, we saw it as kind of a lighthearted thing. We're just like, oh, tsh, they have to put that there. Oh, they have to put these disclaimers there. But at some point, people started to take disclaimers really seriously. They started to take content warnings really seriously. It was no longer fun or tongue in cheek. It was just like, no, you need this. We need this. We're doing a show that only talks about murder and rape. We got to warn people it's about murder and rape. We name our show Mortisheet. We got to warn people it's about murder. You know, it, that sort of thinking, it's, it's pathological. And I get why they do it. It's not that I don't understand why they do it. It's just that this redundancy and believing that's necessary is what's funny to me. But it's kind of like it's psychic because it's like they're predicting that someone will get upset. They have a prophecy that somebody's going to listen to this and get upset. And if we don't say, hey, you might be upset if you watch this, somebody's going to be even more upset. So it's, it's this kind of prophecy unto itself. It's kind of a prediction. That's what disclaimers and content warnings are. It's like saying, I know how people are going to react to this. So I'm just letting you know that if you're going to react that way, not to look at this. Well, someone who wants to find a problem with something will find it anyway, but it's kind of what it is. It's, it's like a psychic disclaimer. It's like we have no responsibility for how your brain processes this because we know some of you will process it the wrong way or aren't mentally capable of processing it in the right way. Um, 
it, it, it's kind of funny though. It's almost like telling someone, don't freak out. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. You know, it's almost like telling someone that it's like, they might as well say that a disclaimer or a trigger warning. It might as well be saying, don't freak out. Okay. We're going to talk about this. Don't freak out. And I don't think it's that effective. I mean, when you say that to somebody in a conversation, it's never good. Like if you're talking to the sort of person who's going to freak out about something and first you tell them, don't freak out, they're going to freak out even more. And so I kind of feel that way with this content warning disclaimer world we live in, where it's almost like the the people who are going to freak out about that stuff are going to do it anyway, because that's what they do. People who freak out are going to freak out. They just do it. They've just somehow decided that's what they do, or they were wired that way. I don't know what it is. So I don't even know how effective it is. And I don't know who stumbles into that shit. Like, who stumbles onto a true crime podcast and doesn't know what to expect? And I mean, that one girl, the friend of a friend, it's like, does she expect people to say to her, like, don't freak out, but here's a sandwich, you know, don't freak out, here's here's a... (laughs) don't freak out here's a lava molten cake just letting you know because i know that you're gonna want one no i know that you're gonna want one so i'm gonna hide it that's entitlement though that's a it's a kind of an entitled view don't freak out here's a psychic disclaimer here's a preemptive warning to the people who are prone to freaking out, that you might freak out. That's a good prophecy. You might freak out. Oh, you're the kind of person who's going to freak out. But what you realize, like going back to prediction being a very mundane thing, prophecy being very mundane, is it, it often is like, oh, is that person going to freak out if they find this thing out about me? Is that person going to freak out if I say this thing to me? Or I'm not going to say, I'm, I'm not going to say this thing to them. Because they're going to freak out and I can see it. I can visualize it. But that's patterns and intuition. Like when a couple of people I hadn't talked to in a long time saw, people, someone I saw, someone I talked to, like when they, were, when they brought up kind of hot button issues to me that have a political connotation recently in the last few days, I didn't say anything. Because first of all, I don't have anything to say. So why would I say something? But second, it's also because like I can, if I'd say the wrong thing, these are, these are good people, but it's like, if I say the wrong thing, I can see them taking it the wrong way. Because sometimes you say the wrong thing, but someone takes it the right way. That can happen. Just like you can say the right thing and someone will take it the wrong way. Wrong way. But it's how we govern our interactions with people. We're like, oh, yeah, if I say that thing to that person or I do that thing, they're going to react in this way. I mean, when you're when you're in a romantic relationship with someone, it's especially true because you really start to know each other's habits. Oh, if I do that, my girlfriend's going to get really mad because I know the patterns of her behavior. But even if you don't know the patterns, like sometimes you can just guess. But it's kind of cheating when you really know somebody. If they're like a family member or a close friend, of course you know how they're going to react to a lot of things. You understand their framework. But we have to do it a lot with total strangers too. We have to come up with little prophecies. We have to think like, what is this person going to do if I do this or don't do that? And that gives people anxiety. I mean, that's a source of a lot of people's anxiety. Like Terrence McKenna said, you know 
Anxiety is a form of hubris because you assume you know what's going to happen. Anxiety is almost like the affliction of the false prophet. <laughs> Where you're like, I know what's going to happen and I, I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm going to freak out. I'm just going to sit here and freak out because I know what's going to happen and it's going to be banned. It's kind of what anxiety is. Sure, you can. anxiety can be a very real disorder that's irrational. But oftentimes it's because you're overthinking something. Like, yeah, sometimes it's something is something bad or scary is happening. But other times it's like you're just sitting there imagining that happening. You're you're having some sort of prophecy. It's the source of a lot of people's anxiety, prophecy. You don't hear that mentioned much. You're, you're getting it new. You're getting some fresh ideas here. Because I know everything. I'm like Joe. I'm like Joe. He passed his knowledge on to me. Joe passed his knowledge on to me. Well, what did he know? Well, he knew everything. He passed, he passed a little bit of it. That's what I'll say. I don't know everything. Joe gave me a little sprinkle of his knowledge. And that's a lot because he knows everything. A little sprinkle of knowledge from the guy who knows everything. That's a lot of knowledge right there. That's how I know what I know. Um, <laughs> but... uh you know, anxiety is very much that. It's like, I know what's going to happen, and I'm freaking out about it. I know how this is going to go, and I'm just freaking out. Don't freak out. Dude, don't freak out. Someone's cutting your hair. Don't freak out, but I just cut your ear off. A lot of it isn't that, though. A lot of what people are freaking out about isn't real and right in front of them. It's not pressing. They're freaking about, out about everything. Anything and everything. Everything gives you a reason to freak out. And if nothing is happening, you might find a reason to freak out too. People freak out about nothing happening. Being bored and realizing you're bored and not being able to do anything about it, it's kind of like freaking out. <laughs> it's not really because it's not this. It, but it's like you're, you're upset about the fact that you're bored. You're upset about the fact that nothing is stimulating you. And people get anxiety from boredom. So anxiety, uh, boredom is a form of freaking out. That's my opinion. That's my experience. That's my, that's what I know. That's what Joe taught me. As little boys, Joe said, <laughs> never mind, never mind. Uh, but uh, that's about all I got. Happy Saturday. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free